we are here to praise one name, the name of Jesus Christ. For there is no other name, Scripture says, under heaven that God has given to us by which we must be saved. That's Acts 4.12. So we who have believed the gospel, the good news of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ, His Son, have every reason not only to praise God ourselves, but to desire that all peoples around the earth would praise Him. And that's why we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes, as we were reminded just a moment ago. We don't do this in isolation, this idea of worship, this idea of witness, of making known the gospel of God to the peoples of the world. We don't do this in isolation as individual believers, but in collaboration with one another as the church of God. And we see a beautiful expression of this in Romans chapter 15. And I'd invite you to turn there in your Bibles at this point. Romans 15, our text at verses 14 to 29, the second half of the chapter. It's on page 893 in your pew Bible. Romans 15, 14 to 29. Now usually we read uh, all of the text first and then we got, go back through it piecemeal. But this morning I'm going to do it a little different. I, I want to take it um, kind of a bite at a time as we go through it so that we can savor every bit of it as we come across it. Paul begins in Romans 15:14 with a word of affirmation to the church. Romans 15 verse 14. Paul says to the church at Rome, "I myself am satisfied about you my brothers that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another." That's a nice way to begin a passage, isn't it? I am satisfied about you, my brothers, and you could say, and my sisters, that you are full of goodness and that you are filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. Now, was Paul just uh, flattering the congregation because he wants to receive some financial help from them? Well, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you know that's not the case because Paul has actually spent time correcting them, even rebuking them uh, because of some divisions that have been occurring in the church and some judgmental attitudes toward one another. So, so even though Paul is encouraging them here, this is not flattery. This is not false praise. Uh, Paul is not buttering them up. Paul is building them up by affirming their genuine worth in God and acknowledging the grace of God in their lives. It's interesting that Paul starts off by saying, I'm satisfied about you that you yourselves are full of goodness. Because in this very same, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> in this very same letter back in chapter 3, Paul said, no one does good. No, not one. So how do we reconcile this? Well, if you go through the book of Romans, we know that when Paul says no one does good, not even one, he is talking about our natural state apart from the saving grace of God in Jesus Christ. But the good news of the gospel, and that's what gospel means, it means good news, because of what Christ has accomplished for us through his death and resurrection, 
those who trust in Christ as their Savior have been declared righteous by God. Uh, They have not only been declared righteous by God, that are not only forgiven by God, but they also are indwelt by the Spirit of God. And it's because Paul is writing to people who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and are seeking to live their lives to the glory of God that Paul can honestly say, as a word of affirmation, you yourselves are full of goodness. Paul wants them to know that despite their struggles, they are good people. They are, by grace, God's people. They are a living testimony to God's transforming grace. Back in uh, Romans chapter 1, at the very beginning of his letter, Paul said in verse 8, after an initial word of greeting, the first thing he wants to say, he says in Romans 1, 8, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. So yeah, the church at Rome had some struggles just like all believers do, but by the grace of God, they had a vibrant testimony. They had a solid reputation that was known throughout the entire Roman Empire. This was evident, and Paul encouraged them accordingly he built them up by affirming their goodness in the lord he says that you yourselves are not only full of goodness but he also says you are filled with knowledge and able to instruct one another i think paul is saying this because he doesn't want these believers to be overly dependent on him or any other one person why is that because they too as believers in christ have the Word of God. As believers in Christ, they too are indwelt with the Spirit of God, the Spirit of wisdom and knowledge. And so Paul says, you yourselves, yes you, you are filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. Matthew Henry, the Puritan commentator, wrote, Those that have goodness and knowledge should communicate what they have for the use and benefit of others. It is a comfort to faithful ministers to see their work superseded by the gifts and graces of their people. How gladly would ministers leave off their admonishing work if people were able and willing to admonish one another. I would say amen to that. The more you admonish and encourage and build up one another, the less... A pastor has to do that individually, bearing that full burden for the people of God. It's, you know, you may doubt, like, you know, I I don't know that I can be, you know, full of knowledge and able to instruct other people. Let me tell you this, and and I got to be honest, there's a little ulterior motive because grandparents love to brag about their grandchildren, right? So we have uh, our daughter, Megan, her husband, Stephen, visiting with us uh, this weekend from Virginia, uh, Timothy, our son, is actually here also from Tennessee. And uh, anyway, they brought their, their three kids with them, Ivy, Ezra, and Jude. And they, they nickname Ezra Bud. They just call him Bud as a little uh, nickname. And uh, a few days before they came up, uh, Megan, as a proud mom, sent me this text. They've been uh, working through the New City Catechism with their kids. And uh, their son, Ezra, is four years old. 
Uh, and Megan texted us saying, you know the New City Catechism songs are paying off. When Bud and I are driving in the car and randomly he says, Mom, do you know the only way we can be saved? By faith. And then Megan said, in who, Bud? Ezra responded, in Jesus Christ, in the substitutionary atoning death on the cross. <laughs> wow. And I say that because if a four-year-old child being raised by Christian parents, while he may not understand the full development of that doctrine, is able to comprehend in some measure the grace of God in Christ and the substitutionary death of Christ, certainly you as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who sit under the Word of God week to week that are hopefully reading your Bibles every day and praying in the Holy Spirit can instruct and encourage and admonish one another as fellow believers. And I would challenge you to develop your God-given ability by taking uh, equipping opportunities that we have right here at Webster Bible Church through growth groups, through our Truth Tracks ministry, what some churches call Sunday school, like Christian education classes. I want to especially make a pitch today for uh, training that I'm providing this fall on Wednesday evenings called the Care and Discipleship Course, CDC. And we're in this course going to look at what God's Word says about the typical challenges that every Christian faces. It could be worry, fear, anxiety, depression, how to resolve conflict in your relationship with others. You will be helped in your own life and relationships, and you'll be equipped to help other fellow believers deal with these issues in their lives. So we only have about a dozen spots left. Lori Miranda, our uh, interim executive assistant for the summer, will be at the Welcome Center to get you signed in electronically if you would like to participate in that course. I honestly believe it's going to be filled up probably within moments after the church service. And we do have a max capacity of 25 people for that particular course. So please make sure you get to the Welcome Center as soon as you can, right after the worship service, if you do want to participate in that. Paul told Timothy, fan into flames the spiritual gift God gave you. Fan into flames the spiritual gift God gave you. Let's use the resources God has given us in His Word and in His Holy Spirit as believers in Christ to encourage and admonish and build up one another as fellow believers. Well, following this word of affirmation to the church, Paul then reviews his accomplishments in verses 15 to 19. Romans 15, verses 15 to 19. Paul says, after this word of encouragement. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Well, there's a lot said in those verses, but let's just break it down briefly. 
After affirming the church, Paul says that the reason he spoke to them boldly on some matters, and if you've been with us, you know what those some matters are, that there were some judgmental attitudes between uh, Jews and Gentiles regarding their convictions over things, things that are not clearly expressed in Scripture, but they had disagreements on. And Paul says the way that you're judging one another, looking down on one another, the way that you're mistreating one another is not promoting the unity that God wants us to have. And Paul is telling them here that even though he's saying, no, you are full of goodness, uh, you are filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another, that Paul has satisfied them about, uh, about them in that sense. He does say, the reason I spoke to you boldly on some matters is because of my ministry to the Gentiles. Paul goes on to say that in verse 16, that by the grace of God, God poured out his grace on me as an apostle so that I could perform, as it were, a priestly service representing God to other people in order that I, in that priestly service, by proclaiming the gospel of God to those who have not heard, may present to God an offering of the Gentiles that is acceptable to him. Paul is using language that's actually taken from the Old Testament book of Isaiah, a prophecy that was given 700 years earlier. In Isaiah 66, God tells Israel that God will send his messengers to the nations and to the distant islands that have not heard of my name or seen my glory. They will proclaim my glory among the nations. And they will bring all your people from all the nations to my holy mountain in Jerusalem as an offering to the Lord. So Paul is borrowing this language from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah because he sees his present ministry as a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Paul applies this prophecy to his own mission to proclaim the gospel to Gentiles who have never heard the news of the great victory that the God of Israel has won through Jesus the Messiah, through his atoning death and resurrection for sinners. You might recall back in chapter 11 that Paul was talking about how God had graciously grafted the Gentiles into the tree of blessing that had belonged to Israel. Here in chapter 15, verses 9 to 12, that we looked at last week, we saw that Paul quoted from all three major divisions of the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, and the writings, to show that the inclusion of the Gentiles in God's kingdom was part of God's plan all along, and he even foretold it throughout all the Old Testament scriptures. This is the same reason why Paul told these believers here at the church at Rome in verse 7, to welcome one another. As Jewish believers, as Gentile believers, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. See, the unity of Jewish and Gentile believers glorified God by showing the unity that we have in the midst of our diversity because of the gospel. Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. As I have loved you, so you ought also to love one another. 
So, because of Paul's ministry in proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles, of promoting in the church unity between Jewish and Gentile believers, Paul says this astounding statement in verse 17. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. That's a pretty bold statement. How many of us can say, I have reason to be proud of my work for God? Paul isn't bragging about himself, though. Paul is boasting of what Jesus Christ had accomplished through him. As an apostle, Paul says, he had been given the power of signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, which God used to authenticate Paul's message as having come from God. 2 Corinthians 12.12, Paul refers to these signs and wonders as the signs of an apostle. The fact that he was able to perform miracles as he was empowered by God's Spirit proved that he had really been sent by God and that his message was from the Lord. Christ had commissioned Paul to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And that's exactly what Paul did. In verses 18 and 19, he says, By the power of God's Spirit, I have fully presented the good news of Christ from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum. In other words, if you were to look at a map, which we will in just a moment, Paul had preached the gospel halfway across the entire Roman Empire by the time he wrote this letter. And this caused Paul to be proud of his work for God. My question is, would you be able to make that same statement? As you look at your life as a believer in Christ, as you examine the service that you render to the Lord out of love for Christ, can you say with that opening caveat, which is important, in Christ Jesus then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. Even by introducing that statement within Christ Jesus, it's still a very profound statement, isn't it? It's a bold statement. I have reason to be proud of my work for God. I admit it would be very easy to look at Paul's accomplishments as recorded in the New Testament and feel pretty pathetic about my own. I'm sure you feel the same way. But as we will go on to see throughout the remainder of this chapter, and especially the final chapter of Romans, chapter 16, you will see that Paul was able to do what he did only because of his collaboration with other ordinary believers who prayed for him and supported his ministry financially and collaborated with him in other ways. Paul was a church planting missionary. Not everybody is that. In fact, very few are. But the prayers and the financial contributions of God's people across the Roman Empire in local churches all throughout these regions is what gave Paul the resources he needed to do what God had called him to do. I want you to think of this. Most of the believers that supported Paul never traveled beyond their hometown or region. And yet Paul considered them to be valuable co-laborers in the work of the gospel ministry. These believers bloomed where God had planted them, and their labors were bearing gospel fruit all over the world. 
You know, as I thought about our own church and the co-laborers we work with across the world, I corresponded with Chris and Mihaela Guess, our missionaries to Romania. I don't know if you saw that 12-minute video that they sent. I, I gave a link to it in our e-newsletter, the WBC Post, this past Thursday. If you, have, if you have not yet watched it, go home and watch it after the church service, or if you're not on our mailing list, we'll show a 12-minute video immediately after this service. Just hang out in the sanctuary. We'll play it after the service so that you can watch it. But Chris and Mihaela Guess are on the front lines in Romania serving 100 Ukrainian refugees per day, feeding them, clothing them, sheltering them, sharing the gospel of Christ with them. You know why they're able to do that? Because churches like ours pray for them and support them financially. If they didn't have the resources they need to sustain in that work, they would have to come home to the States. But by the grace of God, your offerings, your prayers, and that of other churches make a difference. We, we are linking arms with them in this work God has called them to do. The same is true of Bill and Lori Smith, who also sent out an update this week. Their medical missions ministry in uh, Papua New Guinea. Uh, the Bible Institute they have for training pastors and evangelists. The churches that they plant all throughout that country are owing to the prayers and the financial gifts of God's people. Same with Dale Marshfield in India. Did you know that Webster Bible Church is sending me as your pastor over to India at the end of next February in the first week of March to teach with Dale to pastors, uh, national pastors that could never afford to go to the big cities, attend any seminary classes. So we're taking the training to them. We're going to be teaching them theology. But I could not go, Dale could not go, if you did not give, if you did not pray, if you did not support this ministry. This week, on Tuesday, this coming Tuesday, I'm scheduled to have a, a, a conference video chat with uh, Andrew and Anna Smith, who have been serving also in Papua New Guinea for four months now. We waited so long to send them, and yet they've already been there four months part of uh, Ethnos 360 Aviation Ministry. Andrew himself is not a church planter, but he flies church planters where they need to go to the villages to plant those churches or out of those villages to get supplies for the villages. And they would never be able to do that if you didn't have Andrew. And you would never have an Andrew, a pilot like him, if there weren't churches back here praying for and supporting people like him. And so Paul recognizes that these believers bloomed where they were planted and Paul could not be proud of his work for God if they were not being faithful in their labors for God. So here's the point. You, like Paul, can genuinely be proud of your work for God in Christ Jesus because of Christ, what he's accomplishing through you if you are praying faithfully for the missionaries we support all over the world. If you are giving faithfully to Webster Bible Church so that one-fifth of our budget, which is dedicated to missions, can continue to support these missionaries in their endeavors as partners with our church. If you yourself are being faithful to proclaim the gospel to your neighbors, to your classmates, to your co-workers, to your friends, and if you yourself in this church are promoting unity within the body of Christ, showing that the gospel unites us, even despite some of our natural 
differences. Your part individually may seem insignificant, but it's not. Because our collective contribution all put together for God's work literally makes a world of difference. Be encouraged. But I would also say, if you're not praying faithfully, if you're not giving regularly, if you are not proclaiming the gospel continually, if you are not promoting unity intentionally, then you have no reason to be proud of your work for God. Instead of being proud, you ought to be pricked in your heart to get on mission with God, to get on board with God's agenda. The great missionary statesman C.T. Studd said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And that's why Paul was not content to rest on his laurels. Although he was proud of his work for God, he desired to do even greater things for God. And so Paul, in the next set of verses, moves beyond his accomplishments to his ambition. Paul's ambition in verses 20 to 29. Again, in verse 19, Paul said, From Jerusalem to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And you can see it on the map there that Paul had traveled halfway across the empire at this point, sharing the gospel with those who had never heard. But Paul was not content to stop there. I think a lot of people would. Look at how far I've gone to share the gospel with others. Paul says, hey, this is what I have accomplished with the help of Christ, but I'm not satisfied with this. I have a greater ambition to do a greater work for God. Look at what he says in verses 20 to 29. Paul says, And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Again, another prophecy fulfilled. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. And they were pleased to do it. And indeed, they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Again, much could be said about these verses, but I don't want you to miss the forest for the trees. There's two things I want to highlight. I want you to notice Paul's twofold ambition in these verses. Number one was to cement the relationship between Jewish and Gentile believers 
by taking the offering of the Gentile believers all over the Roman Empire back to the Jewish believers who were poor in Jerusalem. You understand his reason for that? He's like, look, as Gentiles has profited spiritually from the church in Jerusalem, by them sending out the gospel all across the Roman Empire, shouldn't the Gentiles then be a material blessing to them by giving financial gifts to help those who are poor in Jerusalem? And Paul knows that if they recognize their spiritual blessings from the church and they help that church with their material blessings, what's it going to do between Jewish and Gentile believers all over the Roman Empire? It's going to unite them. They're going to appreciate one another. They're going to love one another. They're going to depend on one another to fulfill the work of God. That's Paul's first ambition in moving forward. His second one, note, is to preach the good news where the name of Christ has never been heard rather than where a church has already been started by someone else. Brothers and sisters, Paul's ambition, as stated here, is the heartbeat of Jesus' great commission to the church to make disciples of all the nations. Ethne, all nations, people for whom Jesus ransomed by his blood for God, the Bible says in the book of Revelation, from every tribe, language, people, and nation, who together with one voice will glorify God. And Paul actually stated that in this chapter, chapter 15, verse 6. So in other words, the goal of the Great Commission, listen, because a lot of churches get this wrong. The goal of the Great Commission is not merely to see more people come to Christ. It's to see more people from every sociolinguistic group across the world come to Christ. So before the throne of God, there is a representation from every nation on earth praising God for His great salvation. Paul was ambitious about reaching these people. Are you? We've talked about our support. Not all are called to go. We pray and we give. But brothers and sisters, some are called to go. And there's a reason why 3,000 plus sociolinguistic groups are still unreached in the world today. It's because they're in the darkest, most dangerous places of the world where very few believers are willing to go. I wonder if there might be a young man, young woman here, that God would raise up from Webster Bible Church to go to one of those unengaged groups where the gospel has never been heard, where a church has never been planted and say, if you will give, if you will pray, I will go. I wonder what parent here would be willing to not only allow, but encourage your children to pursue that kind of mission in life. Even if it meant they may not come back to you again. Adoniram Judson, the first Baptist missionary from America, married Anne Hasseltine on February 5, 1812. 
Two weeks later, they boarded a boat and headed for Burma, which is officially called Myanmar today. A country in Southeast Asia between India and China with more than 100 ethnic groups. Prior to their marriage, Adoniram had sent Anne's father a letter asking for his permission to marry Anne. Now, many of us have maybe had that little talk, interview with our prospective father-in-law before marrying someone. Here's the letter that Adoniram wrote to Anne's father. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure in her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of the perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness, brightened with the acclamations of praise which shall redound to her Savior from heathens saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? To John Hasseltine's credit, he let Anne decide. And Anne took some time to decide. But in the end, she married Adoniram and by God's grace had a fruitful ministry in Burma where she did evangelistic work, adopted orphan girls, where she educated children. She translated the Gospel of Matthew into Thai in 1819, and thus was the first person in the world to translate any part of the Bible into the Thai language. She also translated the books of Daniel and Jonah into Burmese. In 1824, when war broke out between the British and the Burmese, Adoniram was arrested with other foreigners. Anne saved her husband's life by lobbying government officials bringing him food in prison. He was often in torture in prison and pressing for his freedom relentlessly for two solid years. Shortly after Adoniram's release, Anne died, utterly exhausted by the persecution and her added family responsibilities in the absence of her husband. A lot of times we hear about Adoniram Judson as the great missionary, in that he was. But he had a wife named Anne who was every bit as ambitious for God as her husband. Soon after accepting Adoniram's proposal, before they departed for the field, Anne wrote to a friend, I feel willing and expect if nothing in providence prevents to spend my days in this world in heathen lands. Yes, Lydia, 
I have about come to the, my de, to the determination to give up all my comforts and enjoyments here, sacrifice my affection to relatives and friends, and go where God in His providence shall see fit to place me. Anne expressed similar sentiments in her journal and proceeded to write in that journal, Jesus is faithful. His promises are precious. Were it not for these considerations, I should, with my present prospects, sink down in despair, especially as no female has, to my knowledge, ever left the shores of America to spend her life among the heathen. Nor do I yet know that I shall have a single female companion. But whether I spend my days in India or America, I desire to spend them in the service of God and be prepared to spend an eternity in His presence. Have you come to that point of surrender in your life? Not that God would necessarily call you to go, but would you be willing to go? Would you be willing to release your children to such a life? Indeed, would you encourage them as they're growing up in your home, that that would be the noblest of aspirations, the noblest of ambitions. In his book, Rescuing Ambition, Dave Harvey reminds us, ambition is prizing something so much that we go after it. We're willing to sacrifice to get it. God is pleased when we prize and pursue the right things. Prizing what is of eternal value stirs ambitions to pursue those things. And so our prayer needs to be that the Holy Spirit would stir our hearts to pursue and to prize the things that God values. Brothers and sisters, I encourage you, let's be ambitious for God. Let's show our children that this is the most important thing. And with that, we close with Paul's appeal. We've looked at his affirmation to the church. We've looked at his accomplishments by Christ. We've looked at his ambition for God, the things he has yet to do but desires to do. And now his appeal in verses 33 to 30. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. Oh, may the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Well, in these closing verses, Paul pleads with the church to pray for them, knowing how essential that is in their partnership with them for the sake of the gospel. I want you to notice that in verse 30, he invokes all three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He prays for a successful mission to Jerusalem to deliver that offering so that he can come to the saints in Rome and be refreshed and encouraged by their company. And in addition to asking the church to pray for him, Paul also prays for them specifically that the God of peace would be with them. So we see in this closing appeal kind of the heart of the passage as a whole. And I believe the key takeaway is this. Be ambitious for the Lord 
in collaboration with his church. Be ambitious for the Lord in collaboration with his church. That is to say, our individual ambition must be harnessed to the corporate mission of the church. There is no such thing in the New Testament as Lone Ranger Christianity. You need the church, and the church needs you. That's how we fulfill the one another ministries in the New Testament and take the gospel to the world. This interdependency is part of God's grand design for his people so that we can experience the unity and power we have in Jesus Christ. Next week, we'll see in chapter 16 that our collaborative service for Christ strengthens our solidarity in Christ. Let me say that again. We'll see this next week. Our collaborative service for Christ strengthens our solidarity in Christ. Even now, I would ask that we heed Paul's closing appeal in chapter 15 by spending a few moments in prayer together. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Not only have you created us, but in Christ you have made us a new creation. And so we say with the saints throughout time and eternity, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might forever and ever. Lord Jesus, we magnify you today as your people. For by you, your blood, you ransomed us for God. And not just us, but you have ransomed people of every tribe and language and nation. And you have made us, your redeemed people, a kingdom of priests for our God. And you have promised that we will reign on the earth. And so, Lord, we pray as you taught us to pray that your kingdom would come that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the meantime, help us as the subjects of your kingdom to represent you well. O Holy Spirit, help us to live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world that's full of crooked and perverse people. Help us, God, to hold firmly to the word of life so that on the day of Jesus' return, we too can be proud of our work for God, knowing that we did not run our race in vain. But like our Savior, we can say that we have accomplished the work that you gave us to do. Lord, we have so many needs, so many opportunities before us. We have but touched on a few of them in this prayer. So help us to pray without ceasing all throughout the week. Help us, O God, to give thanks in all circumstances, knowing that this is your will for us in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.